Welcome to Abolition Liberation Solidarity, a Here for the Kids production. We're an abolition movement dedicated to fighting systems of oppression that stem from white supremacy, including gun violence, climate catastrophe, houselessness, and oppression of all kinds. I'm Syra Rao, your host and co-founder of Here for the Kids. Today's guest was born and raised in Palestine and now works within the U.S. political system to enact meaningful change towards Palestinian policies here in America. We'll get to that conversation shortly. But first, take a listen to this. I've seen the footage of, You've seen footage of shredded children's bodies. That's my taxpayer dollars. I'm going, going to bomb those kids. So I think we should kill them all, if that makes you feel better. So I think we should kill them all. So I think we should kill them all. Those words from Andrew Ogles, a Republican from Tennessee, who said the quiet part out loud on camera. Ogles is a sitting member of Congress, but it wasn't just Congress today. As I'm recording this today on Tuesday, February 20th, America, the country, was the only member of the UN Security Council who vetoed the UN Security Council resolution for a ceasefire in Gaza. Third time. This was the third time. Today was a 13 to 1 vote with U.S. being the only veto. UK abstained. But with that veto, the U.S. killed the resolution and along with it, thousands more Palestinians. I want to say it again. We are the only country to veto it. It is because of us that the genocide continues. And this is the third time. Today, who made that call? Joe Biden, just like he did the other two times. So Ogles, a Republican, sitting member of Congress, we should kill him all. And President Genocide Joe Biden a Democrat signing off again on the continued genocide of Palestinians. Both parties, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, are actively committing genocide to Palestinians. Both parties are actively ethnically cleansing Palestinians. I will not vote for anyone in either party again. Why? Voting gives oxygen to the system that is actively murdering black and brown people abroad and here at home. What's the difference between what Ogles did today and what Genocide Joe has been doing every day since October 7th? Again, this is active support of genocide. This is not complicity. This is active billions of dollars. Without the United States, Israel could not and would not be able to do what they're doing to the Palestinians. Simple. Simple as that. The U.S. is completely doing this in cahoots with Israel. How is either the lesser of two evils? It's not. I'll be getting into this today with my guest. Zaina Eshrawi Hutchison is a Jerusalem-born Palestinian activist who now lives and works in the U.S. She serves as development director of the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee and also works with the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights on state-level policies around Palestine. Zaina has been an activist and advocate for Palestine and Palestinian rights for decades. She's also been one of the voices in the movement challenging U.S. policy and more recently encouraging Palestinian Americans to refuse to meet with members of the Biden administration. Well, that is, until they show some meaningful movement towards a change in policy on Palestine. Her voice is critical at this moment and her work has inspired me greatly. It is my pleasure to welcome Zaina to Abolition Liberation Solidarity. Welcome, Zaina. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. 
I'm so excited for this conversation, Zaina, because when I met you a couple of weeks ago, I just completely blown away by your work, which it's been for a long time, your forever work. Um, you are Palestinian American. So if you want to just get us started, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, thanks for having me so much. I'm grateful for the space and the opportunity to represent what I do for the Palestinian people, for my people. I was born and raised in Palestine. I was born in Jerusalem, raised in Ramallah. Um, my parents are still in Palestine and Ramallah. I grew up in Palestine during the first Intifada. And then as a teenage, late teens, I came here as a student. Eventually, part of the ethnic cleansing plan, they expelled me from Palestine. Uh, the Israelis did, took away my ID. And that's a, you know, a, a conversation in and of itself. But they took away my ID. I ended up here in the United States as a citizen after many years and after marriage. Continued working for Palestine as Palestinians. We are lucky to be born Palestinian because, you know, it's it's so special and it's an honor to be able to say that we are indigenous to the land and, and defend the rights of the people. So working for Palestine is in my blood. And so I continued working for Palestine in various capacities as an activist, as a writer, as a, you know, speaking to various groups. And then more recently, I decided to really learn and understand how the political system in the United States works uh, in, a, in a more direct way, in a micro way, rather than a macro sort of general understanding of the system and, and in order to, to figure out how to change it or influence it somehow. So we started at the, as everyone does, at the federal level and then slowly moved down to the state level where we saw the way the system has been working against Palestinians in every possible avenue, politically speaking. So um, here I am. I'm a mother of two kids in the public school system, uh, and I uh, currently work for the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, uh, ADC, in Washington, D.C., uh, and I'm very, very happy to continue the work for Palestine in, in every way. Okay, two questions just two things that you said that I would love for you to flesh out out of the gate. We hear intifada as Westerners and people lose their entire minds. Like that terrorism, 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 right? You said how you grew up during the first intifada. <laughs> Number two, fascinating because you and I talked about this when we met, how ethnic cleansing of Palestinians presents itself in all sorts of ways and how the removal of your ID is part of their ethnic cleansing plans. If you can hit on those two topics, I would love that. Sure. Antifada literally means uprising. It's an uprising against oppression. In its most basic form, it is people bending together and taking to the streets in mass and demanding liberation, demanding freedom from an occupation. And during the first Antifada, it was one of the first times where the world actually saw Palestinians on the ground. I remember as a kid, we would all stand on the rooftops and, and bang on metal, anything that we can find to make noise, literal noise. And I had hope as a kid. I used to think, you know, the uprising, the Antifada is going to bring attention to the Palestinian cause. And it did. It did what I didn't expect. And till this day, we, we keep getting shocked and reshocked, if you will, that it really does not, has not moved the officials. So, but an intifada really means an uprising against oppression. And, and um, during the first intifada, there were a lot of different ways that people rose up, whether it's literal noise making, whether it's protests and rock throwing, and whether it's actually reaching out to the world by finding spaces where people would hear us, uh, whether it's in uh, international news media or even the local media that started getting picked up nationally speaking independently about the Palestinian narrative rather than through 
you know, through the Israeli lens, if you will, or through the Zionist lens and, and the U.S. lens. So, yeah, in its basic form, it is an uprising against oppression. As far as the ethnic cleansing, I mean, ethnic cleansing of Palestine is decades long and it does take various forms. There are, you know, three basic ones, in my opinion, that they employ at every angle, every chance they get, which is either kill Palestinians, which they do, displace Palestinians in refugee camps uh, or expel them or keep them living in Bantustans in sort of enclosed areas surrounded by military at all times and miserably tortured. Uh, the type that I've experienced, I mean, we've experienced all of them really with friends and family, but the ethnic cleansing that with regards to taking away IDs, there is a, they're trying to empty East Jerusalem or Jerusalem in general of its Palestinian inhabitants. And so what they do is they say, if you are not living in Jerusalem for more than six months, then you lose your ID. The problem for Palestinians is that when you are a Jerusalem ID holder, it's a color-coded ID. They Like the West Bank has a green, the Jerusalem has blue. And if you are a Jerusalem ID holder, you don't have an Israeli passport. You also don't have a Palestinian passport. And you have a Jordanian passport that is stamped Palestinian because they you don't get rights in Jordan. Right? Yeah. So you are basically just a resident of Jerusalem as a Palestinian. No rights. What they do is, so I came here on a, on a visa an F1 visa as a student. And uh, when I at one point went back to get my returning resident visa, imagine to go back to my own home where my parents still lived, where I was born and raised. I didn't have any other home. This is it. I was a student. They denied it. They said, you're not going to get a returning visa. And after a very long time of pressure, writing publicly, speaking publicly about it, I returned and they gave me a returning visa limited to basically just go home, do what I needed to do paperwork-wise because I was making too much noise to silence me, essentially. So uh, I had a 10-month-old at the time, and we finally went back to Lid Airport, which is now known as Tel Aviv Airport or Ben-Gurion, but we call it Lid because it's built on a Palestinian um, city called Lid. So uh, we get to the Lid airport and there they held me and my child for about six to 10 hours. So they wouldn't let us leave the room and they wanted us to wanted to put us on the next flight out back to the United States, even though I actually had a returning visa to my own home. Eventually, after many, many conversations and, and me being really upset and frustrated and making as many calls as I possibly could, I was really lucky, actually. I had, I mean, it's something as simple as having a charger for a phone uh, at the time. In 2009, I think it was 2009 or 2010, we finally managed to, to leave the airport, found my father. They told me I had two weeks and I had to go to the Ministry of Interior, the Israeli Ministry of Interior, where all the Palestinian documents are created for, for Jerusalemites. And there they returned my travel document and it said nationality undefined. And they um, told me that, you know, basically I needed to leave. And when I find I stayed in Palestine for a little while, I think I had a week or 10 days and then I left. And when I left, I was told, you no longer have an ID. You're not welcome back. Problem was, I didn't have a, a U.S. passport. So when I came to the U.S., I just had nothing. I came wow. back as a visa on a, on a, I think at the time I had um, beginnings of the green card through my husband. Right. But I had nothing. So this is part of the ethnic cleansing. It's deliberate removal of people either by death or by physical removal of credentials, if you will, the documents that they issue, or by, you know, making sure that people are delegated to specific areas surrounded by military checkpoints. God. 
And you had a 10-month-old baby with you. What was that like? It was unbelievable. I, I couldn't believe the inhumanity. I mean, I could because I've experienced it on a very visceral level as a Palestinian born and raised there. But to see, that's my child. There, it's, it's a very different experience when it's your baby and it's a 10-month-old. And, you know, unfortunately, I have to say that I did think, well, he's an American. Why are they doing this to an American child? You know, he's not Palestinian. Fine, you can take me, but why are you holding my baby? It was really, really a visceral reaction to the extent that they're willing to go to to prevent just a mother and her child returning home. Luckily, I was nursing at the time, so I didn't need to have extra food. I was able to feed him. But, you know, I didn't have diapers or anything. So I was, you know, soiled. He was soiled and they wouldn't help. They wouldn't do anything to help us. And this is mild case compared to many others. And I was lucky that I was able to go back home and, and my father was waiting for me outside of the airport waiting for us. But it, the inhumanity of it all, this is just a glimpse and I'm privileged. I am able to travel and leave and come back in whatever form that is. But I am able to leave. I do have access to people who can help if something was to happen to us. But, you know, nobody, if you're a Palestinian, you're not safe anywhere, really. And that's a really important point, is that this is how they're treating you of privilege. And now we can see how they're treating everybody else. And talking about babies, right, you were nursing, that picture, I'm sure you've seen it, of that child being, a newborn being fed a date. No water, no formula, and Folks are like, well, why is the mom not nursing? Because the mother is malnourished. What is she gonna? What kind of milk is she producing? I mean, it's really. I, I think we're we're seeing all three of the the three prongs of ethnic cleansing in full effect right now, and it's horrendous. And even still, people are not moved. And I think that's what's horrifying to us. So I guess that's where I would love to kind of shift over to what you're doing now. So the Biden campaign recently sent top aides to Dearborn, Michigan, to meet with the Arab American community about Palestine. And you and other prominent Palestinian activists are re are refusing to meet with the administration. Can you talk about your work there and why? Yeah, absolutely. There is no conversation to be had. I mean, you cannot talk to people who are annihilating your family, your people. We Our demands are very basic, a ceasefire and allowing unhindered access to aid to come into Gaza and the rebuilding process to start. Of course, then we demand an end to the siege and ending the occupation and ultimately liberation is the ultimate goal. But for conversation to be even a, a, a possibility, there needs to be some sort of commitment that they see us as human beings and with their actions so far over the years, over decades, not just now, but culminating in a genocide, a horrific genocide that people are watching in real time. And not able to do anything about. I mean, people are in the streets and demanding a ceasefire in every way, whether it's in the city councils, whether through protests in the streets, whether it's protesting events that these uh, these members of this administration are talking to people in. We are a large movement. This is not a meeting with Blinken or a meeting with Biden or with the vice president. It's not going to end all be all. It's not going to move the needle, particularly if they haven't even called for a ceasefire. So as a movement, we have to respect the fact that, that we don't work in silos. We work as a team. And in order for the movement to succeed, we need to respect the space that others are providing for us to work in. So when we see everybody in the streets demanding a ceasefire, people interrupting, demanding a ceasefire, even legislators, some principled ones demanding a ceasefire, people in Palestine primarily and demanding a ceasefire, 
you cannot meet with people who aren't even willing to take that first step. If I thought that there would be any movement, then maybe we can discuss, but there shouldn't be delegitimizing of a very powerful unified movement. The reason why they try to do this, and they've done this over the years, many years, is that they tokenize Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims. They use us for elections and for their, you know, particular DEI, if you will, conversations without really genuinely following up on what we care about and what is beneficial for our communities in action. We often hear them bomb Gaza, for example, and then say, yes, but, you know, we, we are supporting humanitarian aid. Or, you know, oh, look, we're, we're, we just passed a bill to sanction four Israeli settlers in the West Bank, right? Without actually taking actions like stopping the, the uh, um, occupation. It's, it's very simple. Palestine is a, an issue of justice and principles. And the moment you lose sight of the fact that that is what unites people and that is what should be the pillar that we as a community move forward with, you lose the, the power that you have. I think, you know, the power isn't access. The power is principles, standing on principles. And we see this. The more we, we say, no, we're not going to meet, the more they try to approach the community. And that's twofold for various reasons. But two important reasons are, one, to undermine this solid united movement that has been growing and should continue to grow until there is a ceasefire that is permanent, but also dividing the community making sure, as they've done over the years, and this is not just related to Palestinians, people have been tokenized and ignored and, uh, for political gain and, and party access for decades. And it's not just Palestinians, it's Arabs, it's Black people, it's all minorities, Muslims, etc., to make sure that there isn't unity in demands. And because when there is unity in demands, then you put the politicians in a space where they actually have to work on principle rather than on politics. And now that we've seen it, you recognize, people are starting to recognize the disparity and the hypocrisy in all of this, where they do one thing and then they say something else completely and then and then they try to meet with us to divide, uh, which is, you know, what they're doing. The process of meeting anybody that meets with this administration not just undermines the movement in the United States, it actually undermines the demands in Palestine, which is the front and center priority that should be for anybody working on the Palestinian cause. We hear the streets in Palestine. We hear the people under occupation right now experiencing some of the most horrific situations in Gaza, but also all over Palestine. We need to take uh, our guidance from Palestine. We need to center Palestine and the Palestinian people because that is where the voice is coming from, not from the United States. We, we, we want to make sure that we center those who are most at risk at this time. I honestly feel like crying hearing everything you just said, because when people say it's not, it, it, it is free Palestine, but how Palestine is freeing us. First of all, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because what you are doing and what other Palestinian Americans are doing by this is showing, not telling, because we talk a lot about White supremacy depends on divide and conquer. And people are like, okay, okay, well, what does that mean? How, how can we fight that? This solidarity. And when you said sort of like, how dare us over here, we're not being carpet bombed. You're not being carpet bombed, right? How dare we meet with Butcher Blinken? How dare we meet with Genocide Joe? How dare we meet with Killer Kamala when the folks who are actually being carpet bombed are saying no? In some ways, we've never seen this before. 
the kind of solidarity that you, your leadership and your fellow Palestinian American leaders, you're showing us. You're showing us all. You're showing the world. So thank you. Number one. Number two, it's not easy. And you're making it look and sound easy because you're super cool and collected. Can you tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes and how it has actually come to fruition? Yeah. And Sarah, I want to say that we all stand united. Yes, we teach one another. We've learned from the Black Liberation Movement and, and, and uh, Civil Rights Movement. We've learned from various movements in the United States and elsewhere on how to proceed. I want to acknowledge also that uh, we are part of a much larger movement of liberation, both in Turtle Island and Palestine and everywhere else. And also what unites us all on Palestine is that Palestine is not just a Palestine issue. Palestine is a feminist issue. Palestine is an environmental issue. Palestine is a justice issue. It's a civil rights issue. So we all see ourselves in it one way or another, whether we're Palestinian or we're not. So that is why I started our conversation by saying I'm honored and proud and lucky to be Palestinian. It's just because it, unfortunately, it takes genocide and occupation to bring it to the forefront, but it really humanizes us as one unit working for liberation. In terms of the behind the scenes, it's interesting because as a woman, but also as a an activist, I, I recognize that pushing back often is viewed as aggressive or, you know, marginalized. And I often am, and we all often are in our own spaces and called this and called that. But what keeps me going, like we said earlier, is the Palestinian people and the goal. And I say this in all of my conversations with fellow activists and otherwise who feel discouraged at times, like we all do, or tired, or there's, you know, disagreement on anything. We always have to remind ourselves why we do this. Uh, why we're here, what's the goal, what's the important part. So yes, it is extremely difficult to get to people who feel like access is the key to liberation. It is also really difficult to reach people who feel we should not have any involvement in the political system because it is forcing all of us into a system that is not just, that is geared and catering towards white supremacy in particular in the United States. And we can talk about, I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence of how the United States is complicit, not just in the genocide, but in the occupation and ethnic cleansing of Palestine for, you know, active. I wouldn't even say complicit, active. Yes, active. Yes, absolutely. So, no, it's not easy, uh, but the goal is the guiding light, if you will, Palestinian people and Palestine. It, it all depends, for me at least, people don't have to like one another in the movement. People don't have to work in unison on sort of one thing. There's plenty of space for everybody where everybody's expertise are. We have to respect that not everybody believes in working within the system. However, making sure that we all understand where the red lines are, making sure that we understand that if part of the movement says stop, even though it might not be something that I or others are really in agreement about, it is really important for the continuation of this. And as a Palestinian movement as a whole, and seeing everybody joining finally in, in this beautiful, humbling, incredibly dedicated and selfless movement, really brings to the forefront the beauty of this all. And yes, it is difficult, but the unity of it is is what keeps us going. Uh, the unity of seeing people of all colors, of all genders, from everywhere in the world united for Palestine really, really is is helpful in all of this. Because the goal, as you said, and as we discussed in colonialism, 
is division and, and white supremacy. That is also uh, a main goal. And we see that in every way possible. So the hard part for me is trying to keep people together to understand that, you know, if you disagree with someone or with part of the movement, it doesn't mean that you disagree with the whole movement. It's just a different approach and there's space for everyone. I so appreciate that. You're right. There is space for everyone and you free Palestine, you free the world. You know, when you say this is not just about Palestine, this is about all of it. You know, so, like you said, social justice, racial justice, LGBTQ, all of it. 100%. You know, we're very focused on connecting those dots. This is to free us all, right? But we do exist within electoral politics in this country. And you and I have talked about this. Like I ran for Congress and now I'm not a big fan of working within the system, but I do understand and I very much appreciate there's a place for all of us. Yes. Um, further to that, next question. Um, as you know, uh, we're in a presidential election year. You know, people super tune in, Americans tune in when there's a national big presidential election. But your work is focused on what's happening in state houses across the country, which typically doesn't get much coverage at all. Can you talk about your work within state legislatures? Yeah, like all other legislation and all other political work that is trying to silence people, marginalize people, other people, members of the LGBTQ community, Black people, other minorities, it tends to trickle down to the state level. And unfortunately, people tend to focus on the federal level as the end-all be-all of the conversation. But in recent years, but historically as well, States have been passing bills and resolutions to silence, to censor, to harm individuals through a system that is established locally. You know, you don't think much of it. You think for in, in, the, in the case of Palestine, you think, oh, it's foreign policy. It doesn't matter. But what's been happening since 2016 and even before then, but there's been conversations about this for a while, approved by the Zionist entity, otherwise known as the State of Israel, are directives on laws to pass. Uh, and it has been across the United States. States have been passing anti-boycott bills, which is making people sign on to contracts that are basically a loyalty oath to a foreign government saying that they will not be boycotting Israel, the, the Zionist entity. So that is what the anti-boycott bills is. And it's been passed across the United States in various states. And they do this under cover, basically. Nobody knows that these bills are being presented. Now they do. But at the very beginning, they would sneak them in. And they would sneak them in under the guise of protection from anti-Semitism, as opposed to anti-First Amendment, right? Or anti-free speech or anti, you know, or censorship or whatever. And to, so of course, stop the, the Palestinian movement. Because BDS works, because boycotts work. We saw that in South Africa. We saw that in the United States in the bus boycott. We saw, I mean, Montgomery bus boycott. We've, we've seen that boycotts work and they know that it does. So they try to pass legislation to prevent people from boycotting, which ends up being fines and, and not taking, you know, not being provided funding and intimidation factors and all of this. So the anti-boycott bills have been rampant across the United States, sponsored by the Zionist entity that is otherwise known as the Israeli government and has been passed in various states. Now, once we started recognizing that this bill has been going around in, in its various forms, we started learning about how we can stop them. In fact, the organization where I volunteer, the one where you and I, the VCHI, the one where, where both of us met, started because of combating an anti-boycott bill that was presented in Virginia. People of, uh, I think it was a, a Jewish person, a Christian person, and a Muslim person and I don't think of it as a, as a religious issue, and that's another conversation, but I think it's important in this context because they frame it as an anti-Semitic, you know, protection from anti-Semitism. 
So these three people, or uh, I think there were five, actually sat down together and said, we have to prevent this bill from passing. So they learned a little bit about the system and they brought other people in, had these conversations and prevented this, prevented the bill. Uh, I think it was a bill or a resolution the very first time, but it kept coming back. And we sort of, we needed to really integrate and make these connections with the elected officials at the state level to explain the very basics of why this is not right, why this is infringing on your own people's rights. And why is it that you keep telling us, well, we don't do foreign policy, yet somehow these bills are being passed as an exception, just like Israel is on every other level. Israeli exceptionalism is outrageous. But um, so this is, you know, we, we work tirelessly for years. It's the fourth, it's been brought in Virginia four times already, defeated four times. These bills are both Republican and Democrat. The Democrats tend to, uh, at least in Virginia and other states, it's not the same. They tend to vote against it because it's an easy vote against it, right? Where the problem ends up happening is in the last few years, there was a massive push for the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which basically equates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. Seven out of the 11 examples in the working definition of, of the IHRA definition literally call out work for Palestinian rights or, you know, supporting a free Palestine as anti-Semitic. So this is a very dangerous bill. It was, despite a historic effort in Virginia, this was passed last year. I mean, by, what I mean by historic is that I don't think ever in the state legislature of Virginia you had Palestinians, but also all kinds of people standing at microphones in some of the most powerful rooms in Virginia and calling Israel an apartheid state, calling, uh, you know, calling it an occupation, calling out years and years of oppression and calling it settler colonialism. And it shocked people and it created space for conversation, organic conversation on the basics of why these bills are coming up, who is sponsoring these bills, who is funding these bills. Uh, why do we have to support them when we clearly don't do foreign policy? I mean, yes, we do fight bills because they should not be in the Virginia legislature, period, but also because they are oppressive and censorship and horrific, but also because it gives us an opportunity to educate, to really be present in the moment. Palestinians have not had a voice in the political scene ever, really. And the voice that we do have is usually delegated, gatekept, and hand-selected. But in these open forums, you have Palestinians that have experienced Israeli oppression firsthand, standing up to the people who are passing these legislations or trying and saying, you are harming us. This is what this does. And I don't think they've ever heard from Palestinians before. Wait, so what you just said, so the IHRA definition, that is that what did pass in Virginia? It did pass in Virginia, yes. So what that means effectively, if I'm hearing you right, is if you are pro-Palestinian life, that's liberation. Pro-Palestinian liberation, you are anti-Semitic. Essentially. So here's the trick, though, Syra. What they did was, in the definition itself, it says that this is a non-binding definition. In fact, the author or one of the lead authors of this definition, Ken Stern, is vehemently against the use of the IHRA definition to define anti-Semitism and be used as a means to silence and censor Palestinians. And he has been talking about this uh, since it's been passed as a bill, uh, uh, you know, as law across the states. So what they did was, in Virginia at least, and I know they've done this in other places, 
is that they say this is a non-binding bill. This is just for educational purposes. Uh, however, then they pass other laws that complement this law to make it right. Prime, right. So as it stands, and you know, they tell you, no, no, they did an amendment last year. That was one of the reasons why it passed because of all the noise that we did. People are like, why are we passing this? This is censorship. So they introduced an amendment, which essentially said it's going to be. It's not. It's not. It's non-binding. It's just for educational purposes. This is just to protect the Jewish people from anti-Semitism. And yes, there is real anti-Semitism. Yes, there. It needs to be combated, but not. You know, it's not coming from the Palestinian people because they're asking for liberation. It's coming from real, you know, anti-Semites uh, and equating Palestinian liberation or the Palestinian movement with anti-Semitism is, is censorship. It's violent is, and it's violent. Attacks. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there's no way around it because if you vote, ultimately, some of our allies in these elected positions say, how am I going to vote against a bill? that is protecting people from anti-Semitism. So they're put in a place where if I vote against it, I'm considered anti-Semitic because why would you vote against a bill that is, you know, protecting Jewish people? But then at the same time, seeing that whole non-binding aspect of it gives them the peace of mind to pass it. And as someone who's neither Palestinian nor Israeli, sort of taking bird's eye view here, it, it requires a complete erasure of Palestinian life. And it, it puts, you know, the sort of Israeli life matters more than Palestinian lives, which apparently don't matter at all because we just we we witnessed live stream assassinations of children. That picture now that will go down in the books of that little girl who's hanging without a leg, right, during the Super Bowl, during the Super Bowl. Palestinian life doesn't matter at all. No, it doesn't. You know, I think that we can we can safely say that. Um, just a couple more questions, because I want to understand how these anti-boycott bills work. Me, I'm not a government worker. Me, Saira Rao, I own my own company. I know it didn't pass in Virginia, but say it did pass in Virginia. Let's say I live in a state where there is one on the books. How would that affect me as a non-government worker? If you get any funding from the state, any kind of funding from the state, some and like there's stipulations. Sometimes they say if you have a contract of ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollars with whatever, you have to sign a statement that says you will boycott Israel. And if you don't, then you're marginalized from any work related to the government, um, and you are put on lists. I mean, they're famous. Zionists are famous for creating lists like the Canary Mission, like okay. you know, mm -hmm. other uh, uh, lists that other and and dehumanize and you know, silence. But that's essentially what it does. It says that you will not be supported. You are um, immediately on some kind of sort of anti-Semitic list because you are not willing to take this loyalty oath to, to the foreign government. And I want people, I actually wrote um, in law school an article about how loyalty oaths, even for the U.S., are unconstitutional. So I want people to really understand this, that these anti-boycott bills are forcing American citizens to sign loyalty oaths to a foreign country. People need to then ask, why? So why? That's my question to you, why? Yeah, I mean, the, another question to ask is, why are we allowed to criticize the United States government, but not criticize? But not Israel, but not exactly. Israel. So, that, so that's my question is, why is it that Israel has been elevated above the United States in the United States? Because I think it's... I mean, there's various reasons why they support Israel so much politically because of the location. 
Uh, it is a military base for an imperialist country. It is trying to expand and dominate in that region, in the Arab world, and also because it is an easy scapegoat. When you think about Palestinians or for the general American public now think that essentially the, the, the level of dehumanization and fear mongering towards Palestinians, you would think we are the ones that committed the Holocaust, right? When in fact, we had nothing to do with the Holocaust. We took the first Jewish refugees that even the United States rejected. So there's a there's a level of passing off blame. Uh, you know, we have to we're we're the good guys here. We have to protect this entity against all of these people that are trying to attack it. But I've often wondered really why they protect it so much. But really, it comes down to power and access in the Middle East, in my opinion. And the moment that you lose that, you lose the aspirations of the United States to continue being an imperialist dominating power in the rest of the world. You lose the military industrial complex sort of dominance over because weapons sales, they profit from Israel being there because they sell weapons. I mean, it's continuously. I think the, the, the support for Israel is uh, irrational, but it's very much politically driven for an imperialist country. And, and I mean, it's a settler colonialist endeavor, just like the United States. So there is that connection as well. It's morally irrational and it's politically expedient. Right. And, and like, I think that what we're seeing now is the crumbling of Israel. I mean, this is this is not it's, it's not sustainable. And my goodness, how many more Palestinians have to be murdered, tortured, humiliated, degraded, starved, frozen, dehydrated, all of it. But this cannot last. What we are seeing right now, it, it is incompatible with humanity. It is incompatible with morality. And when Israel, in its current state, no longer exists in this capacity, I do believe it is the beginning of the end of the United States' empire as well. And I do believe that is why we are seeing, I mean, what you were talking about in the beginning, interruptions everywhere. Every day, there's mass protests, marches, disruptions, people, Chevron executives in the Bay Area, you, they're not able to sit there and clink glasses and Nancy Pelosi can't go in peace to one of her galas. The amount of social media activism, the amount of boycotting, all of it, right? Why is it that our American institutions are stalwart against what is clearly a popular, the mass majority of Americans want this to end? They're clinging to the last vestiges of American empire. I do believe that. And and that is why I believe when we free Palestine, we free we free the world from America as well. I mean, and and I think one of the important things that have come out of the genocide uh, and the world realizing the genocide and the extent that at which it's been allowed to continue is the divide between the North and the global South. Which I mean, for decades and years and years and years, the global South has continuously been oppressed. Because, you know, our voices have been suppressed and and resources stolen in every way possible. And now there's a clear divide. And if the United States and Europe, in particular, decide that, yes, we are going to listen to the streets and listen to our people and call for a ceasefire, it undermines the whole initiative, right? So the whole, you know, colonialist initiative and white supremacist initiative and the dominance over over black and brown people uh, all over the world. How many coups have happened in South America since, what, 1948? You know, it's just because the, the CIA doesn't like leadership. This is not a one-off. This is a strategy uh, that the United States have uh, applied 
to the global south, and now the global south is rising. And we are a reflection of it uh, in the micro sense in the United States and in the streets all over the world in the global sense. So, you know, it's refreshing, it's empowering, it's it's difficult to see what has inspired this, but at the same time, it is time. And for me and for Palestinians, what blows our mind, what what's really incomprehensible here is that we're not asking for weapons. We're not asking to kill anyone. We're not asking. We are just asking for our rights, just like anybody else. And uh, we are being forced to live under occupation in Palestine, but also live under repression, suppression, you know, censorship in the United States. How many bills do you think have passed or even been introduced in the United States Congress to support Palestinian rights, any kind of Palestinian rights ever? There's been like four or between four and six of the same iteration of the same bill that's been introduced. The most number of endorses it's gotten is 32. The number of bills that have been passed just in support of Israel and the Zionist entity, basically, and the protection, not just in support, the protection and the demonization and the dehumanization of the Palestinian people. I mean, I can't even, I've lost count. Just since October, I've literally lost count. And to that point, just last night, just last night, Syrah, after we talked about the Super Bowl, Super Bowl massacre in Gaza, while everybody's busy watching the Super Bowl, and in fact, there was an ad sponsored by the Israeli government, if you notice, sponsored by the Israeli government without an FCC disclosure, uh, which is, you know, violation. But as that was right after that is happening, they just last night, a few hours ago, the Senate passed the $14 billion extra to Israel, in addition to defunding UNRWA. Two Democratic senators voted against it, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Merkley. But it is incomprehensible to me that what we are witnessing right now on the ground in everybody's faces is not even deterring the stopping of weapons and funneling of money to a government that is essentially by by the ICJ has been accused if they don't if people don't want to listen to Palestinians by the ICJ has been accused of committing genocidal acts right because saying genocide is is too controversial but it's it's just mind blowing that that they're able to even publicly say yes we're going to pass this 14 billion dollar extra in funding as the genocide is ongoing so you know it's <laughs> It's really, really about self-benefit at this point. I mean, if you look at a slightly different topic about the Nancy Pelosi's uh, dealings with the stock market, if you will, the insider trading stuff, why are they allowed to do this? The same by the same token, why so is the, right? Why is the Israeli lobby allowed to be so powerful? So corrupt. Why are they? Why are there uh, foreign organizations acting in the United States without being declared as a foreign as foreign organizations? Why are there organizations that are working for settlers? And to empower settlements in the West Bank, which is a war crime internationally acknowledged, even by the United States, why are they allowed to function without being taxed? At the very least, why are they even allowed to function, period? Right? So the system as a whole is catering to itself. Uh, it's catering to the ruling elite. It's catering to the interest of a few at the expense of all of us. And all of us tends to be the minorities who are usually, like I said at the beginning, tokenized and marginalized and only used 
for votes and for political gain at the expense of the people. And what you said is so critical. Don't listen to us, Palestinians, us lowly, you know, erased Palestinians. Listen to the ICJ, the grand, you know, white court, if you want to call it, in, in The Hague, right? Nope, we're not going to do that. Since then, if you've noticed, the the IOF, IDF, I, Israeli terrorists, the amount of TikTok videos that we've seen of them literally dancing as they're murdering and raping and pillaging have skyrocketed. It's almost, they're like, fuck you. Yep. Like, look at, we can continue to exist with impunity. That hostages video, and I don't watch the Super Bowl, but I saw the video because it's been floating around. How about the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu said no? We don't want the hostages. They, he, he turned down the, the ceasefire agreement last week. This has never been about Hamas. This has never been about the hostages and the amount of brainwashing and propaganda. And it comes back to why, why, why? And you hit the nail on the head. This is ultimately war between the global north and the global south. Everything, everything. Yes, South America, Asia, Africa, everywhere, right? And you see who's coming to the aid of Israel, UK, Canada, Australia, Germany, <laughs> what, what do they have in common? Right. Anyway, thank you. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for the work. Thank you for you. Do you have anything you'd like to add at the end that you haven't been able to tell us? Um, just one thing, one quick comment about not listening to Palestinians. And this is crucial. This is really crucial because Palestinians have been calling this an apartheid state since the establishment of the state of Israel. We've talked about the Nakba. What is happening in Gaza right now is sort of a, a more expedited and more unbelievable like form of it. But 700,000 Palestinians were forcibly displaced from their homes. Massacres like Tamtura happened back then and continued to happen and displacements have continued to happen. This is not just about genocide in Gaza. This is an, an agenda of ethnic cleansing and eradication and annihilation of the indigenous Palestinian population. Some of it slows down over time. Some of it is expedited and is rushed through when they have a chance. Like I think in Gaza right now, they're thinning the population, quote unquote. They are, you know, re-controlling the, the land uh, and displacing people as well. So this is much, much, much bigger than just Gaza. And I think we have to keep reminding ourselves that the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian struggle for liberation is not based on the sectional view that the Israelis and the Zionist entity, including the U.S., have educated people that that's what it is. It's Gaza and the West Bank. It isn't. There are, you know, Palestinians have been saying apartheid. We've been saying Nakba, which is the catastrophe. We've been talking about uh, administrative detention, which I think is really important to mention. There's thousands and thousands of, of Palestinians in Israeli administrative, administrative detention without trial, uh, without um, representation often held sometimes indefinitely and renewed. This is all part of it. This is all part of the dehumanization and the land theft and the ethnic cleansing. And lastly, I would say, never give up, never stop working for Palestine, never stop talking about Palestine, because that is exactly what you know the Zionist entity wants. We need to stay together as a unit. We need to remember that we are you know, united in the idea that liberation is the ultimate goal. Uh, and we are sort of working together in the various ways that we know how uh, to bring about the change for all of us uh, in the United States. We can work together th to make the change rather than work independently uh, and against each other. And we can do it. I truly believe that we can. I really do. 
Yeah. I mean, we don't have to like each other, but we do all have to love liberation. And that's really it. Thank you, Zaina. Thank you so much, Syrah. Appreciate it. Zaina Eshrawi Hutchison is a Jerusalem-born Palestinian activist who now lives and works in the U.S. She serves as development director of the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee and also works with the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights on state-level policies around Palestine. For more information on how you can get involved with Here for the Kids, please visit our website, here4thekids.com. You can learn more about our mission, make a donation to help support our work, buy our merch, follow our socials, and sign up for a newsletter. Abolition Liberation Solidarity is a Here for the Kids production. Our producer and editor is Heath Rosella. I'm Syra Rao, co-founder of Here for the Kids and your host and executive producer. We will have new episodes every two weeks. Please join us again soon.